My brothers and sisters, the Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. The Pharisees went off and plotted how they might entrap Jesus in speech. They sent their disciples to him with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are a truthful man and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And you are not concerned with anyone's opinion, for you do not regard a person's status. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not? Knowing their malice, Jesus said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin that pays the census tax. And they handed him the Roman coin. He said to them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? They replied, Caesar's. At that, he said to them, Then repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And to God, what belongs to God. The Gospel of the Lord. The closest I ever was to being truant or intentionally tardy for school was with my two older brothers. I was in seventh grade, my brother Craig was in 10th, and my oldest brother, Chris, was a senior in high school. And it was a February morning, the day after a snowstorm had kept us home from school, and it was a Wednesday. And I remember all these details because it wasn't just any Wednesday, it was Ash Wednesday. And after my brothers had explained how They couldn't go to the 3.30 service or the 7 p.m. mass. My mother had looked at the church bulletin and noticed that there was an 8 o'clock mass in the morning. So she raced us out the door at 7.45 so that we could get to St. Agnes in time for the 8 o'clock mass. The church wasn't even a five-minute car ride from our home. And she gave each of us a note for being late. And in her mind, it wasn't a big deal. Homeroom was at 8.20, she thought. We would only be a few minutes late, maybe miss a few minutes of the first period, since she told us to leave Mass after communion, something we should never do, by the way. (laughs) So she imagined that we would be in school by 8.30, 8.40 at the latest. And it's amazing, though, how quickly, with my oldest brother driving and the three of us not in any hurry to get to school, how other options started coming to mind. Truth be told, and not to make my brothers look bad, they weren't really interested in attending Mass at all. So when my brother decided to take the long route to St. Agnes, actually going about three miles out of the way, driving past his high school or my middle school, I wasn't exactly shocked. And then all the streets were still in bad condition with lots of ice and snow on the ground, so that longer route took longer than usual. So now we're already late for the 8 o'clock Mass. Now, just trying to be helpful, I offered that there was also a 9 o'clock Mass that we could attend. And in fact, that was the school Mass that had music and everything, so we could be sure that it might even go to 9.45, 
we could maybe even stretch it to 10 o'clock if we lit a candle and said a prayer at one of the shrines, which we did until one of the older parishioners came over and said, don't you guys think you should be heading over to school? We easily missed the, the first two periods of the day. I was still hoping to miss the third one, which was my math class. But, and we told ourselves we were good Catholics. We had to get the mass for Ash Wednesday, right? And we completely got away with it. Ashen-headed with notes from mom. There were no questions asked when we, we all arrived at our schools. I skipped going along with my brothers who decided they needed to go to the diner after mass even though my brother Chris made a very compelling argument that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Of course, forgetting that since it's Ash Wednesday, we were supposed to be fasting, but I digress. In the grand scheme of things, I know it's not the most earth-shattering act of disobedience that one could commit. Sadly, I could give you countless examples that were even worse that my brothers and I did do. But there was something about this one that always bothered me and still bothers me to this day. I regret being dishonest to my parents and teachers and all, but what makes it stand out is that we simply did all this so that we could be late for school, and we used God to do that. That idea of using God isn't something that the the Churn brothers invented, not by a long shot. And we see that kind of at play in today's gospel. These two groups identified here, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they both hated each other. They were both these Jewish groups, but they had very opposing viewpoints on their relationship with the Roman Empire and government authorities. But sadly, they hated Jesus more. So when it it was an enemy of my enemy becomes friend scenario, they united. And this pivotal question in this encounter, is it lawful to pay the census tax to Caesar or not, was designed simply to stir up opposition against Jesus. If Jesus said no, Roman officials could move in against this radical revolutionary who threatened their civil authority. If Jesus said yes, then they could argue he was siding with the Romans, the very people who had taken over their land. Even more, if Jesus supported this idea of taxes and state and Roman authority, that was seen as violating the commandment to love and serve and obey God alone, which would infuriate the most devout of Jews. So Jesus' opponents are thinking they're, they're pretty clever. And they're both using God in their own distinctive ways to align with their own viewpoints, their own calculations of how things should play out. And even worse, is a means of trying to eliminate Jesus, the Son of God. They saw Jesus as a threat to maintaining their positions of power and influence. And so if they could eliminate him, they figure, then they can go back to hating each other and fighting to see who rated higher in those areas. Interestingly, if we dig at this a bit deeper and sit with it a bit more, we realize that Jesus isn't simply delivering a clear dig at his opponents. He does do that for sure. Jesus is great at multitasking. But in the process, Jesus tries to move them from asking about loopholes and responsibilities and obligations to the state and says, well, since you brought the question of God up, what do we owe God? 
How does being a member of the kingdom of God affect all aspects of our lives? Because the thing is, in asking the question about whether to pay the tax to Caesar or not, one of the things that the opponents of Jesus didn't think about was in choosing to have the coin that had Caesar on them, they had already aligned themselves as part of the empire. They were utilizing the the form of currency of their oppressors. So even though they were always complaining about being occupied, how they groaned, how this was an obstacle to their freedom to live fully according to God's covenant, what they revealed when they produced that coin was they already compromised their identity as God's people themselves by buying into the Roman economy. What do we owe God? That was the lost part on the Herodians who were cozying up to the political leaders of their day and trying to position themselves as as Jews in context of being members of this ruling class in the Roman Empire. That was lost on the part of the Pharisees who had in effect made an idol of their their study of Scripture, that they're, they're blind and deaf to God incarnate as they continue to argue and scheme against Jesus. What do we owe God is undivided hearts and minds that put him first, where our lives are seen as being dedicated to him and glorifying him in everything that we do. Because it's not about fulfilling obligations as on a checklist where we just check them off. It's a relationship based on love, which when love is genuine and sincere, it's all-consuming. An example of that, a few weeks ago, I heard this this story about this Protestant pastor and his wife who had been married over 30 years. And as the pastor was reflecting on all the ups and downs, the challenges, the, the blessings of their lives together, he had this very interesting observation. He said that if before they were had been married, his wife had said to him, I love you, I want to marry you, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. But my high school boyfriend, Matt, would you be okay with if just one weekend a year I had with him? The rest of my time, the rest of every year, the rest of my life is yours. I give you all the rest of that. And by percentage and calculations, that's 99.5% of the year. I'm always going to be totally yours. The pastor said, I love my wife, but if she had come to me with that, I don't think I would have thought that was a good idea or a good deal. Because if I love her, I want all of her. And if she loves me, she wants all of me. Not just the good days, not the days that we've kind of planned for, even the difficult ones when the unexpected happens. Because love changes, love demands, and love impacts everything. Both the Old and the New Testaments talk about the need for us to be detached from the things and the structures and the institutions of this world, recognizing where our true citizenship lies and that we're to live as members of the kingdom of God. Jesus points out in his clever response to their question that if we choose to engage the things of this world and we're free to do so, then we have obligations and responsibilities to them. 
We can't then just turn around and try to claim that with God the Father as our true king, we don't have to fulfill these obligations that we've entered into. And that never excludes us from our ultimate responsibilities to God. The Ten Commandments don't come second to the Constitution. The call to tithe our time, talent, and treasure to God doesn't disappear because our expenses or our desire for things cost more. God must always come first. Jesus telling us to repay to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God what belongs to God is a nicer way of saying we need to stop using God as an out when it's convenient and recognize him first who loved us first and desires our undivided hearts in return.